Madness Without Mystique, a podcast where we process politics, sex, and the unrelenting firehose of bullshit in the news through an unapologetically feminist lens. Each week we begin by venting about the news, go deep on one important issue, call out terrible things happening below the top headlines in a segment called BCU, and then we'll end with something hopeful, even if that something took us 15 minutes to even get a reach. But it's cute though. <laughs> Stay tuned on that. Um, just a reminder, if you're enjoying us to rate, review, subscribe, recommend us, it really helps other people discover us. Um, we always welcome feedback or communication on our social media channels. We are at FWM Podcast on Twitter and Facebook and at Feminists Without Mystique on Instagram. And you can find us on Kofi. Um, at Feminists Without Mystique. Um, one positive review that we really appreciated was a five-star review that's from Not Your Father's History. Um, subject line, great show. As a fellow history nerd, this podcast is great. It takes a fresh appro- approach and makes the content accessible. You'll learn something and open your mind to new ideas with each episode. Give it a listen. Thank you. Not your Father's History. We appreciate <laughs> We love it. We do. We do. Um, Yeah. You know, another day in 2021. Here we are. Here we are. June now. June. 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 Can you imagine June 2021? Are you where you thought you'd be when you were a little child? (laughs) Like, absolutely not. (laughs) Crawling out of a pandemic. Um yeah just so bored on a daily basis with my surroundings that time passes and i don't know what's happened uh yeah no yeah i'm not nearly as rich as i hoped i'd be you know played a lot of mash and uh let's just say it's fine (laughs) it's fine we're fine we're doing great you know 30 is wonderful i'm here for it living thriving um this week we're going to well living i don't know about thriving we're fine um (laughs) we're okay (laughs) we're okay uh we watched um inside the uh bo burnham comedy slash I don't even know what to call it special um, that was written, edited, directed and shot by him over the course of the pandemic. And it's a real, real doozy toozy. Um, but we will get to that. There are a few other things we wanted to address at the top. Um, one of which is the fact that it is the anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, which neither of us learned about in school because <laughs> textbooks are whitewashed and a combination of, omissions and lies okay (laughs) the little bit of truth sprinkled in there just to throw you off uh the tulsa race massacre was uh it happened over an 18-hour period from may 31st to june 1st in 1921 a white mob attacked residents um, including their homes and businesses in a predominantly black neighborhood of tulsa oklahoma called greenwood Um, It's one of the worst known incidents of racial violence in our history. Um, And at the time, you know, news about it was kind of silenced, even though it left hundreds of people killed, left thousands of people homeless. Um, And it had been a booming, booming city. But white people were like, no, we can't have that. Um, 
they only officially recorded 36 people dead. But in 2001, they had um, a state commission examination of events. Uh, but historians uh, kind of <laughs> through their expertise say, I don't think it was 36. I think it was closer to 300. Um, so I think it's important for us to remember that these things happen. Um, it wasn't that long ago that we haven't been truthfully educated on the history of this country. Um, and we need to be aware of these things. It's the only way to move forward and learn and grow and do right for our wrongs if we know what those wrongs were. Right. And when we have the conversations around, um, when people bring up reparations, for example, this is um, an event that might be worth thinking mm -hmm. about um, because the Tulsa was like referred to as the Black Wall Street um, and had a lot of uh, black owned businesses that were thriving. I mean, as much as they could in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, but that's a lot of generational wealth that was lost overnight. Um, and it's, it's sort of, I mean, how do you, you, you can quantify, it's hard to quantify because there's the emotional trauma, um, generationally that's passed down, but then there's also the, the economic toll of that. Um, all these businesses, um, successful business owners, um, and, um, in the Tulsa world, the, the, newspaper at the time, the way that it was reported um, on June 1st was the headline was two whites dead in race riot. Um, and race war rages for hours after outbreak at courthouse, courthouse troops and armed men patrolling streets. Um, and then in second edition um, of the Tulsa world, many more whites are shot. Um, Whites advancing into Little Africa, Negro death list is about 15. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it, it's just, I think, like you said, it's just crazy to think that we weren't, um, I mean, I guess it's, it's not crazy, but it's it just these stories, these events, not, not learning them when you are in school learning about history shapes your broader understanding i think of what is equitable because your 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 concept of of america is just vastly inaccurate and, or, or, and like lacking in a full understanding of what's going on so then you have people like rick santorum or other like people in the GOP just making these broad, um, inaccurate statements, like about how Native Americans don't have any culture, that the culture was all brought. <laughs> White people bringing the culture as always. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's just frustrating because, and I think that's why the, the, it's going to be so important to, try to nail down some changes in education. That's why there are so many people, so many scared GOP conservative people getting upset about critical race theory and getting upset about um, what is taught in schools and trying to, to continue to shape and manipulate um, history uh, the way that we learn it. And it's sort of like, 
broken record a little bit over here in this, but it feels like I, like when I learned history from specifically a couple of my high school history teachers and they weren't afraid to make their class deeply uncomfortable. Um, that should happen early. You should feel uncomfortable early because then you can get over it. You know, it's like something that you have to sort of learn and absorb and get, like get into that feeling. And you should want to, as Brene Brown says, you should want to get it right, not be right. And like, yep. there's a lot of that. And I think, why is there such a vicious need to not get it right? Yeah. Not admit we were wrong. Absolutely not. Not at any any cost. And it's like you think about the the white moms back then and all the generational wealth that their families probably have. Mm-hmm. And you think about how white people in this country have the most generational wealth, and you look at the systems that have been in place. You know, I mean, the police initially existed to basically capture enslaved people. Um, so. You know, you think about those systems in place, you think about these types of stories, because this wasn't the only place that this happened. There were other places all over the country where white mobs descended upon black cities and just demolished them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think there's definitely some some strong arguments for, for reparations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then... Another um, terrible thing, the remains of 215 children, um, the youngest they found uh, three years old, um, they were found buried on what used to be a school, uh, what used to be Canada's largest indigenous residential schools. Um, more than 150,000 First Nations children were required to, from the 19th century till the 1970s, they were required to attend state-funded Christian schools to try to assimilate them into Canadian society, you know, rid them of their their culture. Um, they would get in trouble if they tried to speak their languages. They were beaten, verbally abused, and they believe that up to 6,000 kids um, are said to have died. Um, the Canadian government apologized in 2008 and admitted that physical and sexual abuse was rampant. Um, and just a thing to note, because sometimes people frame these things as as ancient history. You know, we can all agree it's it's horrible, but some people will be like, oh, but it was so long ago. But the last residential school there closed in 1996. Yes. Um so that's not that's not so long ago. And, you know, to think about the the suffering that these children faced, both the ones who were killed and the ones who were not killed, but who were abused. And just the <laughs> the theme of white people really practicing cruelty and ignorance uh, toward uh, the indigenous um, people where where they go. So. This is something that came to light that wasn't, you know, we, we knew that children had been killed, but finding all of those those bodies and the families never knew for sure what happened to them. They just got reported missing, like so many indigenous people who are killed. Yeah. Yeah, it's really austere. And this specific school, this is um, this Kamloops Indian residential school was only closed in the 1970s, which is mm-hmm. still also feels really late. Um, yeah. Like, so 
it's yeah it's sad it's i mean sad it's like the a major understatement it's um canada it's being suggested that perhaps there should be a national day of mourning which i think makes a lot of sense um in the u.s we did this too i think that some of the schools were called like the carlisle schools or something um but basically just ripping children away from their families homes um communities and um trying to whitewash them um, into something that white settlers deemed acceptable. Um, so I think part of the reason too that we bring these stories up as they come up is just because this is all relevant to the conversations that we have and that we're, that are being had on Twitter and in sloppily in um congress and what people are trying to and in universities and all of these like it's really easy like conservatives i think have like a much easier um i think rhetorical argument they could they get to kind of like lazily just say that you know people want you to be they want you to be ashamed of your what of being white and like being american and you know feel bad about stuff that you know this wasn't even that bad you know there's like slavery wasn't even that bad and you know there was no native american culture and they there wasn't even that many like they you know were helping the pilgrims you know there's like all of this sort of like weird misinformation that's just baked into textbooks and Americana and our, our like general understanding of, of history. Um, but these stories keep coming up. There was like, you know, there's, there's a mass grave of kids um, who were, yeah. It, it, so many people's lives were, were wronged, ruined, um, you know, and it's relevant to the justice that, um, BIPOC communities are are trying to seek right now, um, and those communities deserve to be to be listened to, believed, <laughs> elevated, um, and sorry if it makes white people uncomfortable. Get over it. <laughs> yep, just get over it. Help help make change going forward and get over the fact that you're part of a group of people that's like literally the worst <laughs> you know yeah. i was um also i was listening to a podcast with clint smith the third who has a book coming out i think it's called how the word how the word is passed or how the word is spoken i ordered it on amazon but i forget <laughs> forget exactly what the title is but he was talking to Brene brown who um and and she was asking him about he had like interviewed a bunch of people who were defending different confederate reenactments and he was just trying to kind of like understand this group of people that were sort of saying like the civil war you know defending kind of the confederacy and and keeping monuments up and all sorts of things like affiliated with like keeping that culture alive um and Clint Smith was making the case like or making the point like, you know, what would it look like in that instead of bringing your grandkids to the graves of different Confederates in your family and saying like what they did was was, was noble and you should be proud of them, proud of this heritage to just say at an early age, like 
you know, they were traitors to this country fighting for um, continuing to enslave a whole group of people based on the color of their skin. It was wrong. And it doesn't define who you are, but it's just like part of your history. And then you can kind of like, what would it look like to basically expose children early to that concept that they are not, you know, they're not, they don't have to tie their identity to people who committed atrocities in the past. You know, you don't, you can, you, you can just at an early age be educated as to like what happened. This is part of your family history. This is part of the space that you grew up in and it doesn't define you as a human, you know, it doesn't have to define you. Um, And you can be free from it. You can just know about it. It, You don't have to honor it. Yeah. We're not beholden to our heritage. We have the autonomy to be whoever we want to be. There's no excuse to be shitty because you come from shitty, you know, rise, rise above. Absolutely. Speaking of coming from shitty, the last thing on our little topic <laughs> list for the, the news, um, Ellie Kemper. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. Um, I, yeah, just wanted to kind of bring up that I am eagerly awaiting some sort of an apology from her um, on the news that she was like flower princess of like princess goddess flower high you know priestess <laughs> just totally creepy um she was a part of this uh group called the veiled prophet which was started in 1878 um in response to an 1877 labor strike in st louis which actually had both black and white laborers joined together um, to strike against white wealthy elites. And so this Veiled Prophet Society was started by white wealthy elites in St. Louis in 1878 as an anti-labor movement um, and to separate, uh, to, to both like separate the uh, groups that had joined um, to fight for better labor conditions, um, but also to uphold like the white power structure of St. Louis. Um, And ever since then, there's been a lot of like different prominent like um, business owners in St. Louis that are a part of it. Um, It's something that apparently everyone in St. Louis just kind of like knows about. And um, it turns out that Ellie Kemper was, her family's been a part of that gross group and that she was like an (laughs) honorable um, I'm just trying to look for her, her actual, whatever the title is, but she had like attendants, like these, like look, almost looked like flower girls that were like attending her. And she was like, wearing like debutante gloves and, and a, like a big dress. And like this, there's like a lot of like pomp and circumstance that happens with this super creepy, seemingly cultish, not technically affiliated with the KKK, you know, types type group, but it is like, very mm, seems pretty openly white supremacist um and ellie kemper was 19 when she was in this group and was kind of crowned whatever princess of love and glory or something something really really stupid um 
So I understand that when you're 18 or 19, you know, you're still a very much a part of whatever your family traditions are. Usually um, it would take like a very strong willed person to maybe say like, fuck you, I'm not doing this. And you kind of learn as you go through college and live life. But I do think it's something to be ashamed of and that she should um, apologize. And I also am now kind of like weirded out by her family and their like shenanigans. So just a little, this was going to be a we see you, but God, there are just so many we see you's. And I'm hoping that Ellie Kemper, you know, on Twitter, they were calling her like KKK princess. And I guess if we're being like super clear and accurate, this is like, she is not a part of the KKK or ever has like, she never has been. It's just that the, do you really want to be hanging your hat on the fact that you're not technically affiliated with the KKK? Yeah. <laughs> Bless you. Pardon me. I'm allergic <laughs> to white supremacy. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully she'll have a, a thoughtful response. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll see about that. Um, all right, inside with Bo. <laughs> oh my goodness, um, where to begin? I guess so. He he went on like a five year hiatus from live stage performances because he kept having panic attacks on stage. And then in January 2020, he decided to get back to live performances. And obviously, we know what happened after that. Um, COVID. For those of you who, how quickly we forget. <laughs> we all want to. <laughs> we all want to. Um, and his, I mean, the whole special is, uh, God, I don't even know, know to, where to begin. Um, where should we begin? Hmm. Well, he so he starts out and he's talking about how, um, you know, should I even make jokes? Talking about systematic impression, income equality, you know, environmental crises and droughts. And, you know, should I even joke about this? Is it even a time to joke? And then he talks, he goes on to say that American white guys, we've had the floor for at least 500 years. So maybe I should just shut the fuck up. And then there's a brief pause and he says, but I'm bored. <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of, you know, like kind of addresses that from, from the get go. Um, and is sort of grappling. Like I think a lot of us, you know, hopefully a lot of us have been trying to uh, understand these as white people have been trying to understand our privilege and the, you know, systems of oppression against people of color for a while. I think a lot of us um, did a lot more learning on that in the during the pandemic. Um, and it seems like he's no exception to that. And so he's kind of like wrestling between like you know, is he, is he actually here to be like an ally or is he just like bored and needs a stage? Mm-hmm. Um, and a few times he like comes back to, should I give away my money? No. Like, mm-hmm. which I think is a lot of people are like, well, what can I do? Oh, well, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll get into the different, some of the different, um, pieces of it and then talk about some of the more, some of the overall themes yeah but it's a lot it's like a coronavirus diary it's like an exploration of depression and mental illness internet culture brands you know hating yourself um the end of the world (laughs) just all kinds of things it's a yeah it's a lot he It really is something that like needs to be watched 
over and over again was talking before we, we were talking before we recorded about how like it just came out this past weekend and yet like I want I want to rewatch it but also rewatching it is like a mental health investment um you know you're going to come out of it feeling like woozy or like with a headache or you know just or just overwhelmed um he <laughs> In his intro, when he's kind of like, should I just maybe shut the fuck up because of, the, you know, white men have had the floor for 400 plus years or whatever. He's also drawing a, di- a Venn diagram <laughs> that like puts himself in the overlap between Weird Al and Malcolm X. <laughs> um, which just, um, it's so interesting to see the evolution of Bo Burnham for, not, you know, for a lot of reasons, but we grew up kind of with him because he made it's almost like this is a full circle performance because he was like isolated in his attic as a teenager making these videos where he plays the piano and just like riffs and some of those some of the songs that made him famous were slight like were kind of inappropriate or a little bit like in poor taste um, which he gestures to in the middle of his of this performance where he's just, or in the middle of this documentary, documentary, in the middle of this, like art, art. (laughs) Thank you. Um, in the middle of this, he just sort of is looking in a dark room at this projection of himself 15 years ago or so in disgust, basically, um, just, and, and, and sadness. And there were lots of emotions there, but, um, It just, it kind of feels like he nailed a lot of comp, of, of complex truths about um, our generation. Um, yeah, definitely felt like one of our peers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right around the, the same age. And with, yeah, with that piece he was talking about how he wrote offensive shit and then he said it are you gonna hold him accountable it talks about when he dressed up like aladdin when he was 17 that he's got like a closet chock full of stuff that's vaguely shitty like nothing illegal but things that look back and it was you know bad and the sort of you know like i think a lot of us have had these reckonings to some extent with like how much do i dwell and cringe and reflect on what I've done and at what point am I just like almost you know at what point is it like okay I need to (laughs) I need to move forward from this Um, and I think it applies to all manner of things not just you know insensitivities you had or ways in which you acted ignorantly I think there's I think we all have a whole slew of things if we could go back in time (laughs) we might want to wipe from (laughs) wipe from the earth you know Mm Um, but then like revisiting those, I mean, with things that are problematic and I think it is important to reflect and to see what you did wrong and to be honest about it and to work to change. Um, but I think it's, if you're also dealing with depression and self-hatred, it's an interesting, it's just like another, um, another thing on your list of why you're the worst, you know? Yeah. And you know, this this was coming kind of like before, before I watched inside, I was just typing out some notes because I've been, and this is um, something that I'll uh, I get into in one of my, we this week, but 
I'm so disgusted by a lot of people who are, they know that they're acting in bad faith, but they have the confidence that there's never going to be any blowback for those, those bad faith comments. They're just going to stir up shit and watch the world burn. Um, and there's really no like, um, levers of accountability that really are like intact right now. Um, so, and then there's the, and then there are, and so I was like typing out things being like really pissed about that and just being like, what the fuck, you know, these people are insufferable people like Nikki Haley, people like Matt Gaetz, people, you know, but, but also people like Joe Manchin and, you know, there's like every, the whole gamut of, politicians, public, public figures, public speakers. It's, it's, it's a very frustrating group of people who are, have all of the power right now, um, and are doing jack shit. And then you watch Bo Burnham, who's obviously going through a huge, a hugely like meaningful mental health crisis, but he's mirroring back all of our evolutions, I think, or a lot of people's evolution over the course of the pandemic. At the same time, like my heart is just like, like split open for him, you know? And it's just, and I, I, we need him. We need him to be talking the, the vulnerability of what he comes up with, what his insights, um, are so important, so necessary, so beautiful. And I, I mourn the fact that it seems like a lot of the best people in the world, you know, the best artists, the best thinkers are the people who are, who, who have the most mental health ailments. And this is again, like I'm (laughs) generalizing a little, but have a lot, have, have depression, have anxieties, because they're letting all of the world in and that's scary and, and, and overwhelming. Like you have to, in order for, I mean, it's almost like in order to be a successful politician or a successful person on the news commenting, you have to be able to block out a lot of the inherent truths of what is day to day happening. Mm -hmm. And then there's someone who like Bo Burnham, who just like lets the floodgates open and it, makes my heart hurt and like just I feel I you know I felt like I watched it in a little bit of a state of paralysis like here is someone who really understands this like just like the enormity of this moment and the tragedy and I I hope he's okay I want him to be okay and I want all of us who are like feeling all of this and he's made he's made this piece of art that touches on so many different like tendrils of, of, of slimy, sad, overwhelming, scary shit. And I, and he's, 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 he's touched so much of it. And I hope that it brings people who have been struggling some solace to know, to see themselves reflected in this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And he, um, when he talks about turning 30, I also turned 30 in the pandemic. OMG. Um, not completely by myself though, which I've thought, I've thought I've reflected a lot. I'm like, if I had been like living alone in like my studio apartment, I would have made my own video. I wouldn't have showed anyone, but like, I cannot imagine the, uh, 
the depression and the like the crazy the places my brain would have gone oh my god mm-hmm. um without just the distraction of like another human and like this is <laughs> i can i can do this um but he's talking about turning 30 and he's like i used to go to bed with a dream but now i'm going 30 i used to be the young one like talking about like just that shift that you feel not necessarily right at 30 but i think it's it's there for a lot of us where you're really adjusting to like what even though you can, you know, at any age, you can grow and flourish and do whatever, but just kind of like letting go of the idea of like certain dreams and and certain things and accepting that like your life is on a trajectory um, that maybe you didn't predict or want <laughs> and like just, you know, seeing, seeing your life and kind of having, in some cases, I think less hope for the future you know being more in touch with reality and understanding that like some of the things when you played mash some of the things you dreamed about when you were eight like they're not happening you can't do whatever you want you can't do whatever you set your mind to because there's a lot outside of your control in this world um not to be depressing and then he ends it with like you know in 2020 i'm turning 30 i'll do another 10 20 30 i'll be 40 i'll kill myself then um and he goes on to like say he's not gonna kill himself he's not suicidal um, but you know, that idea of like, okay, I'll, I'll slog it, I'll slog it, but I'm not like, I'm not looking forward to this, you know? Yeah. It's been, it's been hard for a lot of, I mean, if you just look at like economically how hard it's been for millennials, um, and all that, like the things you grew up and when they happen, like nine, it's just, there are a lot of, a lot of shaping experiences, uh, that weren't the, um most conducive to becoming like a well-adjusted secure adult right i mean and if you take like obviously it's impossible to take out like okay we were like 11 middle school whatever for 9-11 and then all of the different geopolitical events that have shaped us um and our economic well-being <laughs> boomers um, have all our money <laughs> yeah there's also the 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 way in which technology has just like um, exponentially increased, magnified, strengthened um, over the course of just our generation is actually like head spinning. I mean, Gen, Gen Z people will not. I think I think the people who have the most head spinning of, a, of an experience is going to be millennials, and maybe that's a very like selfish look. Maybe it's the Gen. Gen Y or whatever, Gen X, Gen Y. <laughs> Maybe it's the generation before us, perhaps, but it does feel like um, the, I mean, Bo Burnham is a product. His fame, his his, his platform he owes to YouTube, um, to the very beginnings of YouTube and knowing how to how to be a talented person to, and maximize that platform in the early days. Um he actually, fun fact, he, like, my brother's friend knew him. They went to the same private school. <laughs> like, so it was kind of like a funny, um, not my, we did not go to private school, but like my brother's friend, you know, but it was just a funny thing where it got, it was like, oh, this is someone who I feel like we grew up in similar towns in Massachusetts with similar experiences and, um, his his song can i interest you in like everything all of the time the like mm-hmm. Pebble barker internet disco song um was so um 
kind of like most of the songs, it just sort of knocks you over because you're I mean, if what a simple way to just encapsulate how overwhelming, like literally any moment of our lives, it's like you could be doing or engaging in or learning or feeling bad about and Mm self-flagellating. I mean, just like everything all of the time. Try not to lose your mind. Yeah. You have like with the internet, you have access to all of the things and it's like, I feel like there is no, there is no silence. (laughs) There is no peace. Um, And like, for me, I don't know how much of that is the internet how much of it is just like my anxiety what causes what but like I was getting a I was getting a massage for my husband's Ooh. birthday a few weeks ago because <laughs> I got him a massage and I was like I get one too yeah. um <laughs> and the whole time I was like counting down to when it would be over and like not wanting it to end and be like oh no she's at my legs like yes. I couldn't actually en- like I can't actually enjoy living in the moment because I think about all the things I have to do next and all the things that I'm not doing, you know, because I'm enjoying myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the, you know, internet culture, I'm sure has something to do with that. Like the idea that there's always something to be doing. Um, there's always something productive or something or some rabbit hole to get lost down on mm-hmm. in the, in the interweb. Um, but no, it's the, uh, and I do feel bad for the, for the zoomers, like the people who are raised, with like screens and I mean first of all we know that like kids under a certain age being exposed to like iPads and stuff is really bad for their brains and their social development um but yeah you made a joke about like you know come see me in in your late 20s zoomers when you all have dissociative like identity disorders um (laughs) dissociative disorders it's because I think like you said on one hand it's like we grew up as it started to become, you know, go from like the Nokia phones, replace snake to like, now it's like everything at our fingertips. Um, but God, I can't imagine like also having like grown up with it and everything that it entails Mm -hmm. as a child. I mean, we had like Oregon trail, we had the internet and stuff. We had dial up. Um, but God, the pervasiveness of it now and like, where does it end? Does it end? do we end before it ends? Like, I don't know, man. Um, but he does a lot of, you know, he's critical of this, of the sort of internet culture as it were. Um, even though that is the thing that brought him to us, um, you know, back when he was 16, one of the first like YouTube stars Mm -hmm. and he has this song, um, white woman's Instagram, (laughs) which, um, a lot of it is a, so it's like, you know, is this heaven or is it just a white woman's Instagram? And he goes through all these kind of cliche images that you might find on a specific chuggy, (laughs) as the kids are saying, Mm -hmm. uh, white woman's Instagram. (laughs) Like he's like laughing with a shirt that says may contain wine. He's got like oatmeal with like berries and a peace sign, latte Fomart, dream catcher he bought from urban outfitters. Um, just all this like very, curated uh content that's not just that's not actually people like living their lives it's this is the image we are presenting this is how this is how you internet this is how you are brand you know um and then he does like there's an aspect ratio change uh when he's singing from this perspective and he's become like he's this white woman but now he's like publicly grieving his dead mother and 
and father as you learn. And like I said, like the aspect ratio changes and it's, so it's showing you like this isn't, in my opinion, showing like this isn't part of like everything else that she's doing. And I thought it was his like choice to show like there are actually humans, like when you step back from the derision, because it's, you know, people love to make fun of um, influencers and all of that. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's just as hip to make fun of influencers as to actually be one. Um, But I thought he was showing that there are actually like humans behind these curated grams and you know, and then after he does this, like, kind of heart-wrenching little bit about the dead mom, it goes right back to, like, goat cheese salad and, like, getting right back into all of it. Um, and it's, like, there's this, like, glimpse of humanity and then it's back to all of this, like, curated, fake, like, Instagram bullshit. And it's, like, the fact that we knew when he was going through and listing all these things, like, we knew exactly what he was talking about. Every It was funny because it's, like, we collectively know <laughs> what this is. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's still like out there. It's pervasive, and why are like what? Why? Why are we? Why do we still do this? Will it ever end, or will it just change? It's like this. We have this collective consciousness, and it's scary. It is scary. It's scary. He taps into like he. I mean, like he taps into existential, just like dread and angst and um, disgust with like where we're at um, and what like it, it almost seems like it's, it's it could be an episode of black mirror you know you could just pop this on an episode of black mirror mm-hmm. um it's dystopian and yet it's it is it is the it, it's the now um it's and and the you know the white woman instagram was i mean it was one of the times where i was laughing out loud the hardest mm-hmm. at some certain points and it was so accurate but then like we say there are these these like He's making fun of basic white women and chuggy. And we've talked about how there is this other side of the coin, which is, I mean, people do it because they like pumpkin spice lattes and Mm -hmm. big sweaters. I like avocados. I'm from Southern California. Leave me the fuck alone. I like little pumpkins. They're cute. And pretty like foods that look pretty. And, and also because, and because the world is bleak, when you have a salad that looks like fucking pretty, a lot of people want to just put it on Instagram so other people can be can see and feel envious or whatever of what their experience is. There's like obviously layers and layers and layers. But I think sometimes an empathetic look at white women Instagram, which I don't think necessarily we there's necessarily deserves too close of an empathetic look, but it's just that like people are living their lives and there are a lot, there are things that like a lot of people enjoy Mm -hmm. and it ends up being basic because it's an easy thing to skewer. Oh man. And it's like, we're here accepting him for his flaws and him like speaking about how he's buying into all this shit too, or he has, and we're here like accepting him and his depth, but like why, why don't we offer the same to the chuggy woman? <laughs> you know, it's we're quick to accept a tortured artist when it's, you know, and a man. Mm-hmm. And I think we're quick to assign things like basic and chuggy to women. And I think that there are certainly, I'm, I'm not here to like defend white women or like curated <laughs> Instagrams um, because there are certainly people who post shit that they don't even like they filter themselves to 
and pretend like they haven't, you know, setting up young girls for unreasonable expectations. There are people who present sometimes when you present this version of life that's so far from reality, it can really like fuck with other people. And like, you know, I don't think that should be ignored. But at the same time, um, you know, bitches can post little pumpkins. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. It's like it's, you know, we want to be our authentic selves but it's also hard because people are meat on the internet Mm -hmm. um so it's like how much you want to pull back that curtain how much you want to invite in and how clear the rules are to how to fit in because it's it's everywhere now we see what people do and Mm -hmm. we know if we're deviating from that right and then god forbid you're someone who's posting all of the ways in which you you fit in and then you're basic. Uh, I know. It's like you have to be, you know, just quirky enough, you yes. know, just but like not too, not like fucking weird, you know. Yes. <laughs> like, but not quirky in a cliche way where you're no, like. No, not like Manic guy. Pixie Dream Girl. No, 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 no. You have to be like authentically quirky, <laughs> but not too much, you know, like. <laughs> so it's it's oh. tricky. It's tricky. But you know what? I like avocados, right? <laughs> I don't think I've ever posted one, but I enjoy them. Maybe I'm sure there's an avocado in something I've posted at some point, probably. And some goat cheese for sure. Ooh, I fucking love goat. Ooh, I had goat. I made portobello burgers, and I put goat cheese and pesto on them, and I like almost just such a good combo. So good. (laughs) Anywho. so yeah, there was, and then there was, you know, like he did um, some bits that were, you know, more like comedy skits, um, like the, you know, he did a piece about like zooming with his mom. He did one about sexting, which was also, I mean, all the ones that nothing was just funny. Like everything was kind of depressing. It's like yeah. he talks about like one hand on my dick and one hand on my phone. How yeah. like lonely it is. <laughs> um, it was also interesting to see like the different musical styles he did with different songs. Mm-hmm. Um, which I personally um, enjoyed. And then he did this this one that he did. Uh, so he did like a bit of a, like a, a shorter song about like unpaid internships. And then he does this thing where he's like, you know, I think he's going to, you know, you think he's going to be like spoofing reaction videos. So first he says he's going to do a reaction video to it. So first he's explaining like why he chose to talk about unpaid internships, you know, in part as like labor and exploitation of in the modern world. Um, and then he does a reaction to that reaction where he's like, okay, now what I'm doing here is I'm explaining what the song means. I'm being a little bit pretentious. Um, it's an instinct I have where I need everything that I write to have some deeper meaning, but it's stupid. It doesn't mean anything. And it's pretty unlikable that I feel this need, this desperate need to be seen as intelligent. And he has a reaction to that. <laughs> and he's like, here I'm criticizing my own reaction for being pretentious, which is a defense mechanism. I'm so worried that criticism will be levied against me that I love you against myself before anyone else can and I think oh if I'm being self-aware about being a douchebag it'll somehow make me less of a douchebag but it doesn't um just this like these reactions these reactions are just I think so like relatable in terms I mean I hope they're relatable to other people but um of just being like a self-critical human and just sort of the the mental gymnastics you do in forming like a simple or a single like thought or idea or statement and then just sort of like circling back and be like wait well mm, but i don't am i just am i doing this to uh, and just this like weird people pleasy um 
like self-aware, self-critical, little self-loathy vibe. Um, kind of like both of us experience sometimes when we're speaking on this podcast. I, I can't say. stand the sound of my own voice. <laughs> but even when we're like, I, I feel like it's very hard to formulate a strong statement because I want to criticize it before anyone else can. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, there's so many things that I and you do this, too. Like we give caveats. We try to be very, very intentional. And when we aren't, when we're like wacky, like when I went after John Mulaney crazily, um, you know, we see you. It, it feels like it feels bold. It feels like you're opening yourself up to like an Internet firestorm that perhaps is deserved. I don't know. It's just he he. He's again, he's reflecting back at us something really real about being about about being vulnerable, putting yourself on putting yourself out there and then being like, I can criticize myself. Let me do it first. Okay, actually, why can't I just be myself? Oh, the layer, layer, layer. layer. Yeah. And it's just like and I feel like the whole the whole special, it's like there's this idea of like, who am I? Where do I begin and end and where it is like how I perform for other people begin and end and how does the way I interact on social media info, like how much of who I am interacting in the world is actually me and how much am I putting on? Like, who am I? <laughs> it's like when you're fucking alone for a year and some change, you know, filming yourself and doing nothing but like think and write about that. Um, you know, it's, you can, you can see, you can see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I think it, it, it's crazy that he, I mean, his, his disheveled appearance as we get deeper into the pandemic has such an effect. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it's such an authentic passage of time. I feel like there are moments where earlier on you're getting a glimpse of someone who doesn't even realize how bad it's going to get. Mm -hmm. And so he's still kind of playing around some of the shots that are obviously earlier, some of the, the piano tunes and moments um, just, he's obviously in a much a, a better mental place and mm -hmm. um, the de-evolution or devolving of his, of his mental state kind of can also be seen in his facial hair. Mm -hmm. um, um, and then there's, the clutter of his, his claustrophobic space that he's using, which is a perfect um, and made me so uncomfortable and sad for all of us who were in apartments, have been in apartments for the last 18 months or whatever. It's like, this is crazy making and it makes, and I think there were so many, so many moments that he's, he's tapping into that felt unique. It felt like very isolating. I mean, to feel kind of like I'm focusing on all these little things. When did I become such a like hypochondriac? When did I become such a worrier or whatever? Um, feeling like, why am I worrying? I, this must be an issue with me. And it's like, no, there are millions of people who are stuck in this, in their, in this one space. And we're all, all, all of our neuroses, fears, existential anxieties are all coming out. Um, and so to, to, watch him evolve uh was was something i mean i, I don't i don't want to give it like a positive necessarily a positive word it was stunning it was powerful 
I wish he didn't have to go through that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I wonder how much I don't get the, the vibe that there was too much acting going on, yeah. you know, um, I'm sure there were certain things that were, you know, acted or that, you know, he set things up a specific way, but you can definitely, I mean, just look in the man's eyes. <laughs> like he was going through it. Cause like to think that he had just come off of like, you know, five years of intense mental health, you know, treatment and therapy to get back to live performing. And then a fucking global pandemic hits like, Oh honey. Like he was, he was primed for, for you know a, a bit of a, a breakdown um so like he says an atl all-time low not atlanta <laughs> yeah <low man. laughs> yeah um oh and then one one bit i wanted to to mention because i thought it was, it was towards the beginning and you're kind of like okay here we this is we're, we're doing this mm-hmm. um because he yeah he gets deep and he addresses like the reality of the world um outside himself and within himself and there's this bit with a sock puppet mm-hmm. um where it's also revealed that the sock puppet, when it's not on his hand, it's in like a state of sleep paralysis that's like tormenting, um, which is just like a just like a fucked up little side thing that's yes. going on. And you're like, oh my yes. god! Um, but it's like an you know it's set up like oh it's a kids song or whatever, and then the sock puppet and him are talking about like the world. The sock puppet is talking about how the world is built with blood and genocide and exploitation. It says that the global network of capital essentially functions to separate the worker from the means of production. And the FBI killed Martin Luther King, um, which is a very credible fucking theory. Actually, mm. I looked into it um, <laughs> after that. Mm. Um, and then it's like, well, why do you rich white people insist on seeing every socio political conflict through the myopic lens of your own? self-actualization which i think is a big i think a lot of um, there's also this like blurring of the line between like brand and person and there's some talk of like brand awareness and social justice and like what is actually you know meaningful and what is just about the bottom line but that piece about the rich white people insisting on seeing all these things through their own self-actualization is definitely a thing i think you saw a lot of people like posting on you know instagram or whatever like this is the book i'm reading about race um mm-hmm. this is a thing i'm really like learning and growing and because on one hand it's like yes you should be learning and growing um educating others um like a lot of us have been doing like mm-hmm. that, it's not that that's the wrong thing to do but it's just like uh, just seeing seeing all of that in the world and then just being like, well, I let, let me pivot to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> pivot to me being better. And it's like, yes, you do need to be better, but it, you know, with a little humility and not this, like I'm going on this, like eat, pray, love journey. And I am, you know, I don't know. There is this, this bit of like almost like glamorizing mm-hmm. of like becoming, you know, woke. Um, mm-hmm. But I just thought it was also like a great little to just acknowledge that, you know, because he addresses like he sort of addresses what's going on with, you know, systematic impression and the protests that were going on. Um, And so I was glad that not he didn't just nod to it. He also like had a piece where he was like, the world is built with blood and genocide and exploitation Mm -hmm. Um, and just like spells it out real, real clear, Um, because I think that there is. If you're talking, you know, if you're going to have a special about the pandemic and you're going to talk about how you're a white man um, and the privilege you have, I do think it's important to to throw that shit out there in not a subtle way. Right, right. And then to kind of go on to eviscerate um, brands, you know, for their... (laughs) 
wanting to like their their need to cling to social change and have that actually be a part of the brand like what can bagel bites do (laughs) who is bagel bites (laughs) (laughs) you're not just supporting bagel bites you're supporting bagel bites journey to cure lyme disease Uh, yeah that was that was funny you just get the sense with each very um because it is like a tight 90, 90-ish minutes, maybe like, yes. but he lingers in all the right places. And then he's, it's very tight and clipped and, and um, every, all the beautifully um, put together lyrics of his songs matter and pun- and have a punch. And um, you get the sense that part of his, part of his struggle that is weighing so heavily on him is that he really does feel everything that he's saying in terms of like what he says with the sock puppet when he's talking about being a white man wanting to do something. And he's like, has that Twitter mug, <laughs> It's like, you know, and like, I did love to, um, you know, why can't people just shut the fuck up occasionally? Why do, is it necessary that every single person has to have an opinion on every single thing at every moment? You know, just shut the fuck up. Um, but he, yeah, I just, I, I feel like he... I felt that he felt everything that he was saying and the enormity of the moment. And what did you think? The other thing that I wanted to just touch upon, because when he's talking about, because he sort of casually talks about, oops, my phone just dropped. Oopsies. Oopsies. <laughs> he casually talks about um, suicide. He kind of like drops it a couple times early. Like he said, he made this, um, he made this, art because otherwise he would to you know put a gun in his head or something like that mm-hmm. and that was pretty early and then he's like but I'm not going to kill myself and you shouldn't either because just don't and he's kind of like being a little bit pithy about it but then there's that thing where it's projected the earlier him talking about suicide projected onto his like white t-shirt and this is like a later him sitting and listening to it and seeming super skeptical and it's yeah. really uncomfortable yeah and it's definitely like the later bedraggled like looks depressed as fuck and it's you know the the younger one telling you know the reasons not to kill yourself he's had friends kill themselves and it's not fun to deal with and you know it's like if he could kill himself for like 18 months and then like come back he would do that but like once you're dead you're like gone for good it's not time for that yet and stuff and yeah, it's it seemed to be and like again, I don't know what what is performance and what is not, but I read that as like, you know, earlier in the pandemic he was clear on that and then he needed some reminders as the pandemic went on. Um and he went deeper into the throes of depression, maybe some mania, I don't know, everything that was going on up in there, but um Certainly some sort of mental health crisis was being portrayed and it seemed like it was, you know, he was trying to remind himself of the things that he had said and the reasons why. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are other things like there's so much, there's so yeah. much in here. I can't wait to watch it again. Um, you could write a dissertation on one of the fucking, um, Pete skits in it. 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, was there any anything kind of else that you wanted to touch on before we um I mean, I think we I think we hit the the big shit, you know, the big the big themes. Um this oversaturated world we live in who are any of us really um dealing with everything that comes with isolating in a pandemic especially when it makes with mental illness um self-hatred the internet the end of the world mortality um the struggles of our generation yeah i think we i think we hit the big points and um yeah people i definitely recommend people watch it uh particularly if you're in a decent mental state or maybe, I mean, depending on what kind of person you are for me, when I'm depressed, I like to like, just it's cathartic for me to like watch depressing shit. Mm -hmm. Um, because it makes me feel like less alone, but for some people it could be triggering. So just keep that in mind, you know, kind of, kind of person yourself better. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to watch a slapstick when I'm depressed. Like, give me the, give me the saddest shit you got, you know? Um, and when I'm not depressed, I like to watch depressing stuff too. I just, I lived in depression long enough that it's always, it always resonates, you know? (laughs) Um, so anywho, I think people should, uh, give it a watch. It is, yeah, don't go into it. Don't go into it thinking comedy special because it's certainly very funny at times. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is, I think to maybe a dramedy special. It's a bit too dark and a bit too heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'm loving this, this thing that's happened, you know, I think of Nanette, I think of um, how comedians have kind of recently in the last years have taken more of a, a dark real turn with mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm kind of here for it. Me too. I was thinking of Nanette a lot. Um, I had texted my family group thread to say that the Bo Burnham was a must watch and then almost followed it up with what felt like a necessary disclaimer for specifically my dad, (laughs) that this was going to be kind of like Nanette and that I felt that he might get frustrated in that, in that way where, um, uh, he can correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think generally he prefers comedy that is like going to just be mostly funny and that's totally fine. It's just that this is not that. And, um, I kind of want, I kind of wanted to warn, but then I didn't cause I just thought, mm, just you, you have to watch it father. <laughs> yeah. Then you might not watch it. Um, but I generally don't like to engage in that kind of trickery through omission, but, um, it is, I wonder what it says about the moment um, that some of the most like piercing, truthful, heart wrenching work comes through the lens of, of comedians right now. Um, yeah, I think a lot of um, people who learn to use humor as a defense mechanism and like a deflection. I think there's something to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I think it's, I think people who become some of the people who become comedians, I'm not thinking about like Dane cook, who wherever the fuck that piece (laughs) of shit is. Oh, gross. I can't believe I uttered his name in this. Wow. Um, Yeah. You went for it. But I think a certain like smart, 
um, comedians, I think, (laughs) tend to come from um, either tough upbringings or are dealing with mental health issues. It's people who like live in their brains in a very specific way or sometimes you almost feel like you are observing rather than like partaking sometimes you know mm-hmm. um and so i think they between that and then using humor as a defense mechanism because they're uncomfortable processing certain things you you get it together and you've got you know someone funny who at some point is going to have a crisis and do like a breakdown special mm-hmm. um it feels like the vibe yeah yeah well, it's like we we need we need him, you know, we need more of this. I mean, maybe not of this specific thing. This is this is this is something special. This is something special <laughs> that should be on its own. You know, I'm sure there are now going to be like a whole bunch of like kind of derivatives of this. Um, but this is kind of gonna, I think this stands out um, and, and will for a while. I I. Um, it's worth just uh, like mentioning too that it, that B- Bo Burnham wrote this, shot this, edited this all on his own. He lit it, all the lighting, um, and it was really artistic. It was really beautiful. He is a celebrated director. He directed Eighth Grade, which was um, highly acclaimed a couple of years ago. And he's also, you know, he was in Promising Young Woman. Yes, he was. And he was terrific in that, nailed it. And I really was, nailed it. He really did. He he and you know, it's it's now it's like he knew I mean you can only nail that role if you really understand what who you're being, who, mm-hmm. who you're portraying. And he absolutely did. And I have an even greater appreciation for that role and his performance now that I've seen inside. I already knew he was like a a very smart, deeply thinking person but this just like highlighted kind of his like his understanding of the ryan character and also it made me think i remember watching a bunch of youtube press when he was at sundance in like january of 2020 seeming like he was like doing well you know the bo burnham that we kind of all knew before this and it was hard to square that those clips that I'd watched with him joking around with Carrie Mulligan, like in the snow um, with this person who he kind of became and, and his process through 2020, you just, um, it, it made me kind of extra sad just knowing kind of that he felt like he was on the brink of like performing again. He had mm-hmm. a great, I mean, promising young woman, that circuit would have been a positivity loop all year for him to ride. Um, yeah. I wonder how much his what his persona would have if he had been like interviewed during this, mm-hmm. how much it would have because it's in to one extent, I feel like because we got such a raw, emotional, real look because it was him with himself for such a long time. And I think um, particularly like public figures who are struggling with mental illness, like they know how to look good and like they're doing well you know and it's like from his own reports he was doing well back doing that that press junket but i wonder if like you know theoretically he was doing press junkets while he was in the throes of mental illness and we don't really know um so it was definitely a, a unique opportunity to kind of see behind um 
behind the curtain and and he did like disclaimer he's like i have millions of dollars i was able to afford all this equipment i he filmed in his guest house mm-hmm. um so he he did acknowledge like yo i'm like super rich and i have all these things so i'm not you know <laughs> i wasn't actually trapped in this room that whole time um but he did spend a lot of time there and did his like writing there and sometimes slept there and all that yeah Thank goodness for that, because I wasn't fully clear on that before I watched (laughs) and only later was like, oh, thank God. I mean, I kind of assumed like he's not trapped in this room, but I'm sure in a lot of ways he emotionally was. But it was like, okay, thank God that was a guest room. And he he's dating Lorenz Cafaria, the director of Hustlers. Like he is in a like lovely relationship. Okay, here for that. Okay, low. I know. That's low. So that kind of made me happy too. Like he isn't just alone with his phone and his dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah. Googled all that after the fact though. Cause is Bill Barnum alone with his dick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, oh my gosh, the sexting, there were parts of that that were so funny. Like, oh yeah. Except for the top hat. I was giggling. <laughs> Five. <laughs> Ferris wheel, snowman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, good times. <laughs> yeah, everyone, uh, give it a give it a watch. Um, give it a watch. Get to reflect, and then probably watch it again a few days later, and then you know. Yeah, let us know what you think. If there was like a song, because I know we only covered a few of them. If there were things that you want, you know, any any comments or anything you want us to address, maybe we'll come back to it again. Maybe we'll circle back. In a week we'll circle back. We will. Um, all right. And now for We See You. All right. Uh, so last week when the governor of Idaho was out of town, Me- Messy B, who lives for drama and also lieutenant governor, Janice McGeechen, uh, she put an order out while governor's out of town. Lieutenant governor puts out an order banning mask mandates um, in schools and public buildings. Um, she said it would protect the rights and liberties of individuals and businesses uh, in conflict with scientific evidence. The order said masks were ineffective mitigation measures, which is just completely false. Mm-hmm. Um, coincidentally, last week after she made this thing that she knew wasn't going to last because like the governor's going to come back, honey, like, you know, um, but coincidentally when she made that she also announced her run for governor so it seems it seems like she was a little bit self-serving with her little order a little bit of a show she's putting on a little bit of theatrics perhaps um worth noting that McEachin is pro-Trump, very pro-Trump and in March she attended when protesters burned masks at the state capitol in Boise um and the governor of Idaho, Brad Little, is also a Republican, but he's not a one of the Trump Republicans. We've got the factions now. Uh, he did repeal the executive order that was prohibiting mask mandates that Janice issued while he was out of state. Um, and there's never been a statewide mask mandate. She literally just banned having mask mandates in schools and public buildings, which also puts... Um, you know, social workers at risk puts people who are going into, um, you know, labs. Uh, there's a reason why there are mask mandates in certain buildings. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she uh, was also seen on as recently as Friday. She was using the order that had 
at that time was already like taken taken back by Brad Little. She was using it in fundraising efforts. So it's just like we see you for like one doing this thing that is like not rooted in science that will cause people to get sick and die um, for doing it to try to bolster your own like pro-Trumpy show woman situation. Um, It's just gross on like so many different so many different things just so clearly calculated and just the a bad thing to do and god i'll be interested to see who wins uh over in idaho mm-hmm. um i mean maybe a democrat <laughs> but uh, we'll see anywho we see you to janice mcgeechan Ugh, we see you. That's so annoying. Like, and feels yeah. Like he's gone. The governor's gone. I'm gonna do this little thing. Ha! Like, he's coming back. Yeah, he's coming back. It's like she knew it when it. Like, it's not even like she was like doing what she like. She knew it wasn't gonna last. She was doing it just to be like, see, I did this. The governor took it away from you. Yeah. (sighs) (sighs) Okay. So University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, has denied tenure uh, to Nicole Hannah-Jones, journalist, writer, academic extraordinaire. Um, And it was a decision basically made by the board of directors. And there were a lot of kind of like powerful, wealthy white men specifically that um, really were had their feathers ruffled by um, her critical race theory work and her 1619 project, Pulitzer Prize winning, I might add. Um, and so, yeah, feeling threatened by this um, woman, they denied her tenure, which is like kind of a huge deal considering that she put together a package that obviously made, like meets all the markers for a professor who deserves tenure. Um, she'd gone to UNC, I think almost her entire uh, academic life had been at UNC. Um, and it turns out that a specific trustee, um, Charles Duckett, um, raised questions about to the university's senior leadership about a tenure proposal um, and um, was lobbying um, people against it, against giving her tenure. Um, And it seemed like there was this other weird self own from UNC where they said um, that the, where the board of directors said that the candidate didn't come from a traditional academic type background, which feels like kind of a self own because a lot of her academic background was at UNC Chapel Hill. So it's like, (laughs) so you guys aren't a traditional academic type background. I'm confused. Um, And since this denial of tenure, there's been like a thousand um, alums of UNC have spoken out and said that you, you know, they, they should award her tenure. Um, and I think she's also weighing a lawsuit, a discrimination lawsuit. Um, last I, last I saw, um, it's also just broadly one of those things where it feels like conservatives are constantly bleeding about cancel culture (laughs) and censorship. And it's like, this is another kind of experience where obviously 
the canceling happens more on the side of um, the change makers and the women of color specifically um, who are good at their jobs and put together um, the 1619 project, which is like going to be taught in schools. Sorry, conservatives. It's like ultimately if the arc of the universe bends towards justice, like 1619 project, I see it. I see it on the horizon for students. If, if we believe that the world is going to bend towards justice, it will bend towards um, that being taught in schools. Regardless, she's also um, with the concept of introducing 1619 as another um, important year in American history, rivaling 1776, I think like in the, in the matter of a year, she sparked a ton of dialogue. Um, she's been a huge voice in terms of talking about um, critical race theory and, and um, the movement of anti-racism. And she's like, yeah, I mean, she is one of the most prominent academics um, and obviously seems seems beyond qualified for tenure um, and is getting canceled, you know, but if she were someone on the right, this would literally be all that Tucker Carlson was talking about every single night. Um, but this is like the, a real instance of someone being denied um, economic, you know, stability and, um, and, and a career moment that they deserve, that they've worked really hard for because some of the powerful board of trustees, white men are, threatened by what she has to say and by giving her a role, like a tenured role um, in their institution. And it's really too bad. And I know that a mo like the UNC community is really upset by this. It's a huge kind of um, black mark for them. It's an embarrassment um, for a lot of people in that community of, of UNC and UNC alumni. Um, so here's hoping that they reconsider. Um, and if not, I hope she finds tenure at another institution that is that really wants her um this shouldn't this shouldn't have happened it happened a couple of weeks ago and i keep wanting to kind of, i kept wanting to kind of like bring it up so um to unc chapel hill denying nicole hannah jones tenure we see you we see you um i was watching real housewives of beverly hills because that is a thing i do but we're not here to talk about me uh crystal kung minkoff who was an asian american woman was starting to share her experiences with racial discrimination and stereotyping when she was interrupted by sutton strack sutton is a white woman from georgia who interrupted crystal and was like no i'm not doing this and then went to talk about how well isn't it hard and bad that people have stereotypes that people from the south are stupid and are rednecks someone think of the southern bells okay Sutton it's never nice to make assumptions about someone's intellect based on where they were born I'm not out here advocating to call everyone from the south a redneck um, but tell me about the systemic oppression you face as a rich white person from Georgia oh none that's right so why don't you take a deep breath accept the conversation will not be centered around you and maybe learn something because it's just an extra it's, it would be one thing if she was like with some other white woman from the south and was like oh isn't it frustrating how people have these redneck stereotypes but no she interrupted a woman of color talking about racial stereotyping to what about me you know it was ugh, so cringy and so just ugh. Um, she did go ahead. Sutton did release a social media semi-apology. Uh, she starts off just with a qualification. Despite Crystal and my strained relationship at the time, 
starting off strong there, Sutton. Mm -hmm. It was disrespectful to interrupt her and not listen to her express her truth. My life is blessed by the diversity of my relationships, and I'm committed to become a better listener to understand the painful realities experienced by people of color. I am sorry. I will do better and be better. So like part of that, it's like, yes, you were disrespectful. Yes, you should do and be better. You should listen. Um, but she starts it right out the gate with the like, despite her like, you know, making an excuse for herself. Well, our relationship was strained, so it was fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so better than no apology, but we'll we'll see um, if she'll put her money where her mouth is. Um, I'm I'm skeptical. I've never liked Sutton, uh, <laughs> but I, I hope for the I hope that she will evolve. You know, um, so you know it's better than nothing, but kind of a wet fart of apology. Uh, and just you know, when a person of color is talking about their experiences with racial stereotyping, maybe don't interrupt them to talk about how hard it is to be blonde. You know, <laughs> just just read the room. Just read the room. Set set. So uh, we see you to Sutton Strack. <laughs> we see you. Oh my gosh! All right. So South Carolina, South Carolina <laughs> Governor Nikki Haley. Oh my god. <laughs> She she's insufferable in a lot of ways, but this past weekend um, she was trying to score cheap political points and in doing so um, showcased her glaring hypocrisy when she criticized Kamala Harris this weekend um, after Kamala Harris um, tweeted, enjoy the long weekend, which apparently was offensive as fuck. Um, How could she? Yeah. So super pissed off a bunch of conservatives who felt that it was so disrespectful that she said, enjoy the long weekend without um, speaking about why there was a long weekend. So and again, just in this one fucking tweet. So Nikki Haley retweeted it and said unprofessional and unfit, which is like you worked for Donald J. Trump. do you remember what he said about McCain and about veterans and like the many, many offensive things that he said about the military in, at different times? Um, it was pretty um, hypocr- It was pretty uh, hypocritical. Um, she also did tweet honoring the troops on Sunday and Memorial Day. Um, she also, yeah, it. it was just like super, super, super gross. Um, But people pointed out that um, Nikki Haley in 2017 on the 4th of July was like, I have to spend the day working. Thanks, North Korea. And people were like, "Okay," like, I mean, first. So like there's always a tweet to show that you're like a grotesque hypocrite. Um, And then people this year, like, yeah, this year. Nikki Haley tweeted, thankful on this Memorial Day for the blessings of family and spending time with my little one. Hashtag not so little anymore. Hashtag Memorial Day 2021. It's like, well, this doesn't seem like directly thanking the troops, Nikki Haley. Why? You know, if you're going to wade into this and and do bad faith attacks, everyone else is going to like jump on you and be like, okay, well, if you think that that's, you know, but unprofessional and unfit from someone who worked for Donald Trump is beyond the pale hypocritical. Um, 
Megan McCain also got upset at she was another one of the prominent conservatives getting mad at Kamala Harris. And um, as Charlotte Clymer pointed out, Megan, you literally spent last night gambling in a casino and gleefully tweeting about it with hashtag shot girl summer. So where exactly do you get off lecturing the vice president about solemnity this weekend? As a veteran, I would really like to know. Boom. Boom. Megan. Oh, Megan always missing the Mark McCain. Also, it's worth noting that Fox News was like <laughs> Fox News first tweeted disgusting disrespect. Vice President Kamala Harris ignites outrage over misfire Memorial Day tweet, which, by the way, how many misfires were there of Donald Trump's tweets that you would ever label as disgusting and disrespectful? I mean, 100 percent of his tweets were so so interesting to know that you've suddenly woken up again the hypocrisy we could spend an entire episode truly just examining the hypocrisy of this one incident but we won't um but fox news tweeted (laughs) the day before cheers memorial day weekend 2021 cocktail trends it's like let's not pretend that you like Memorial Day is a three-day three weekend in which you also honor the troops. You honor the troops, you have a three-day weekend to be with family, to drink more, to be on a boat, to be not working. That is like just the reality of what Memorial Day weekend is. If you're going to score cheap political points, you are absolutely, it's fair to be in the, you're going to be in the line of fire for people calling you a grotesque hypocrite. Um, and again, this was one of those things which was cast into such sharp relief when I was watching the Bo Burnham special, because I was just like, you know, the people who are voices for conservatives are shitting out of their mouths, this type of like bullshit, like these types of bad faith, um, attacks because they know that it's just going to play so well to like the absolute lowest in their base and to stir up shit when there's no controversy whatsoever. And the vice president was just saying to enjoy the long weekend. Like, and of course that's viewed as just disgusting disrespect to the military. You know, she was in, she was in Annapolis speaking to um, the graduating class of, of, um, the Naval Academy this week and she stopped by John McCain's grave to pay her respects. It's like, what the fuck, man? So anyway, Nikki Haley, I really hope people remember how like groveling and grotesque you've been over the last four to five years trying to straddle. I'm sort of critical of Donald Trump while also I worked for him and I'd love to be president. And I'd lo- I'm going to try to maintain my power and like ride his coattails in in bad faith and in, in absolutely everything that makes the GOP in this moment just an irredeemable travesty. We see you. Absolutely. The GOP is always like it, it'll it don't see <laughs> anything from a, a Democrat or a liberal and I feel like their process is just like, how do we spin this to make them look bad rather than like see something, have genuine reaction and speak about it. It's just it's so uh, transparent awful and awful. And it's just like and their base just like eats it up and they don't they don't see the hypocrisy. They just see what they want to see. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They're like those. You know, how they blindfold horses and fields. Yeah. It's like they're like a bunch of blindfolded horses, man. Why do they blindfold? I'll look that up later. Anyway. Don't they do it not to stress them out? Or is that just in cities? I don't... Yeah, because I've seen... I've seen country horses blindfolded. I've seen seen all manner of horse blindfolded in my day. Uh, 
anyway, I digress. Um, Not an equine expert, but I will look into that. Um, All right. So moving over to flights. A uh, flight attendant on a Southwest Airlines plane um, lost two teeth after being punched by a passenger who repeatedly was ignoring in-flight instructions. Um, And apparently this is an anomaly. Like, this isn't like, oh, wow. Apparently, starting when masks were mandated on flights, there has been a sizable uptick in unruly and aggressive passengers on flights. Interesting. Hmm. Um, According to the FFA, from January 1st through May 24th, there were roughly 2,500 reports of unruly behavior, including about 1,900 of those with people contravening the federal mask mandate. So a good chunk of those were entirely about masks and, you know, the remaining ones were possibly related. Uh, The president of the Association of Flight Attendants, um, which represents like 50,000 flight attendants, a bunch of flight attendants, almost 20 airlines, said that the level of hostility toward flight attendants is unprecedented, that they've never seen aggression and violence on the planes like we have lately. The constant combative attitude over wearing masks is exhausting and sometimes horrific for the people who have been on the front lines of the pandemic for over a year. Um, And that a lot of flight attendants are quitting because it's like, I don't want to go into work and feel like I'm going to be trapped on a plane with someone who's going to like literally punch out two of my teeth. Yeah. Um, just, you know, it's not great. Uh, some airlines are temporarily banning alcohol as a way to try to curb these outbursts. Um, but it seems that anti-maskers are not people you want to be stuck on a plane with. It's It really highlights the selfish, immature nature of the anti-masker. It's mm-hmm. like instead of wearing a cloth covering, you're going to assault a flight attendant. Like, if you want the luxury of traveling in the fucking sky, mm-hmm. you follow the rules because you're in the fucking, you're in the sky. All right. This is, this is this is a privilege wear your fucking mask don't be a little brat about it like oh my god they talk about how liberals are snowflakes but the sensitivity based off of not uh, people being hurt but just the perceived infringement of rights like honey just wear the mask then you can drop you know drop down in oahu or whatever and have your little vacay um all right we see you to the unruly passengers who are assaulting flight attendants because they don't want to wear masks Ugh, we see you that's so maddening for a variety of reasons yep i've recently taken like people people wanting their freedom you know talking about personal freedoms and mask you know hating mask mandates and you know, as basically like directly offensive to women's right to choose, you know, because mm-hmm. the rhetoric is so similar. They're like, the government can't tell me what I have to put on my face, but I can tell women what can go on in their uteruses. You know, it's like, yeah. how do you even hold those two views at the same time? <sighs> anyway. Unbelievable. <laughs> Apparently also quickly horses. Yeah. Um, where <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> there's someone that. out there who's curious about it. Um, <laughs> so they do have eye holes for them to see out of. So they're not like totally blindfolded. Okay. Um but part of it is for horses that are nervous and crowds or noises. They restrict mm-hmm. the uh, noise. Some of these are um, to pr- protect from flies and mosquitoes and other insects. Um, so it seems there are multiple, multiple uses. And also they kind of, pr- they apparently block 70% of UV rays to protect the horse's eyes. Um, so lots of, uh, 
lots of this wasn't gonna be part of our discussion but you know just throwing it out there um you know and sometimes they do it to train horses to respond to their reins um or you know in emergencies for calming down but there are several reasons why you might blindfold a horse uh so the more you know all right go ahead the more you know um this this is like not even the more you know this is like let's concern ourselves with a non-issue non-problem not a not a thing in the world which is <laughs> that bloomberg actually wrote an article today um titled where the headline is spare a thought for the billions of people who will never exist my so answer dumb. to that is no <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I am not going to do that beyond saying we see you to this article because honestly, the tweet was spare a thought for the billions of people who will who will never exist. As world population growth slows, the never conceived are the ultimate forgotten ones. Ultimate. Are you kidding me? First of all, like you said before we started, overpopulation is like already an issue. So it's it's okay that the population is kind of slowing down. It also means that women are getting, you know, again, not not everywhere in the world, but broadly, there's there are areas where women are getting to really be intentional about when they want to have families and if they're in a financial position. And oh my goodness, maybe they choose to have less children because they don't want to be pregnant all the time and they want to send all their kids to college or they, you know, for whatever reason, they're going to exercise agency over their bodies and their their right to have kids when they fucking want to have kids in the exact amount that they want to have. Um, and that's a good thing. It's, it's a good thing. Um, I hate this line of thought and it, it, it's another contributor to this, this weird fertility like conversation that feels like it's happening under the, like not so subtly. And it feels kind of handmaid's tale. It feels paternalistic. Um, it's like women should feel somehow bad for not, um, all choosing to have kids. It's, it, it's, now that we're normalizing, it feels like a backlash to more of the normalization of, of being childless and choosing not to have kids or maybe not to have a long-term partner or just whatever decisions you want to make in your life as a result of being an autonomous human in the world who doesn't have to have kids. It's like part of the world spinning forward, ideally. Um and instead, we're having these bullshit articles written that are like, spare a thought for all the unborn. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And of course, as if anyone needs to be told, it, um, a very clueless white man wrote it, Peter Coy, Bloomberg Businessweek writer. Um, and it's a super philosophical article where he's just like quoting Oxford philosoph philosoph uh, philosophers um, and talking about the ideal population size, um, but you don't have to be a philosopher to think about the lives that never happened. I guess, sir, I'm just like not interested, don't have the time, none of us do. 
to indulge in this little thought experiment. I'm not sure why we ever would. I'm not sure why it's useful or like what is to be gained. Um, it feels sort of like creepy ivory tower conversation. Um, it feels vaguely threatening and I'm just, I'm just not here for this handmaid's tale bullshit. We have enough going on. Like Roe is about to go out the window. There's different like requirements now for, um, or starting to be requirements for other, um, contraceptive um, rest restrictions on contraceptives and requirements for when people have miscarriages and what they need to like register with the state and like bury it in a specific way. It's just like we are like there is a slippery slope happening with women's ability to like make decisions about their lives. So it's like completely not useful for you to write a stupid, ill thought out regressive article about um, the billions of people who will never exist. Just do something else with your time, sir. We see you. Yeah, we see you. There are so many people that do exist that need a lot of help. Yeah. Um, I just don't have the fucks to give about the egg and the sperm that, that never met. Yeah. Wow. 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 God, you really thought you, you really thought you had to write a whole damn article on that, didn't you, buddy? Wow. You yeah. really thought you had something there. He was like, I got I got the idea. This is yeah. gonna be the one. No, man. Keep keep searching. Keep philosophizing. Keep You're not there. Um, good things. Uh, <laughs> we uh, we're having a hard time. We're having a hard time thinking of the good the good yeah. things, finding the good things. But we found two adorable, um, <laughs> wonderful things i would say um one baby elephant so a baby elephant was rescued after falling into an indian well 30 feet deep and if you look that up though it was arriving with its herd from a nearby forest and it made a misstep um and uh, if you look at if you google it you can see a picture of a little muddy elephant little baby just stuck in the well but the, mm -hmm. the baby elephant came out of the well um great love to love to see the baby elephants winning here um and the second cute thing uh so the world's tiniest pig is a pygmy hog uh around 10 inches tall they were thought to be extinct uh back in the in the 70s and then until the 70s and then uh they started breeding the pygmy hogs in conservation and in captivity and now there are about 400 roaming the grasslands again. Um, and they're still there. They're still, you know, making them in, uh, making them, <laughs> making them procreate. There's, they still have their little sanctuaries where they're, I guess, facilitating the fucking of pygmy hogs. Um, but I just love to see a tiny pig, you know, making its way back onto the, the stage. Yeah. So, um, happy god this the light is hitting the light you're looking like truly <laughs> dark and light like um yeah like darth vader or something yeah the light is coming in my window in such a way where half of me is just glowing you can't make out any features and the other half is just like darkness um anyway we're happy about the baby elephant we're happy about the pygmy hogs um we've got questions answered about horse blindfolds i feel like you know we're, we're gonna end on a great note yeah, we are. Um, we are. Yeah. I just tried to take a screenshot, but it didn't work because you moved. <laughs> okay. I'll go back and blind myself back and in blind my right eye. For a second. <laughs> okay. One, two, 
Okay. Thanks everyone for going on that journey with us. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, we hope you enjoyed those, um, those good things. Cause it truly took 15 minutes and we just, we had to hit record at some point. Um, I stand by them, but they're good. They're good. I do too. No, they're good. They're good. <laughs> um, all right. Feminist without mystique is part of the frolic podcast network. Find more podcasts below.